Let me invite you to turn with me one final time to the 33rd and the 34th chapters of the book of Exodus. Exodus 33 and 34, where we have found Moses in an incredible encounter with the living God, God showing him his glory. And we'll take up our reading again this morning in chapter 33, verse 12, and read all the way down through 34, 9. So Exodus 33, 12 through 34, verse 9. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall... Go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face For no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, if 
Now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Father, we pray one more time from this passage that you would go along in our midst and show us your glory once again today. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It had been two remarkable days for Moses, the great leader of the children of Israel. Having heard the sad word back in the beginning of chapter 33 that God was not going to accompany his people into the land of promise, Moses had gone into that tent of meeting, into that place where he had so often met with the Lord and had pleaded with him not to send them up alone. And as we read, God graciously agreed. And then, having gotten that agreement, marvelous as it was, Moses ventured, as we read in verse 18, to ask God for something even more. Having gotten God's assurance that he would be with the people, Moses now dared to ask God for a glimpse of his very own glory, for a sighting of his very own splendor. And God even granted this telling Moses to arise in the morning and ascend to the top of Mount Sinai, and there God would reveal himself to him. And God did so. There on the mountain, though Moses could not see God straight on, though he could not see his face, as it were, and live, God placed him in the cleft of that rock, inside that crevice that he had prepared for just this day and just this purpose, so that Moses could be shielded from the glory that he was unable to handle, and yet allowed to see that which he could. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and gave him a glimpse of his beauty, of his resplendence, of his holy otherness, that surely made Moses' jaw drop. And not only this, but he spoke something into Moses' ear, didn't he? And what did he speak? Verse 19. Well, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. God's very own personal name. And God did that too in chapter 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord The Lord God, the personal name of God, Yahweh in Hebrew, which means very simply, I am, and which connotes very profoundly God's self-existence, that he didn't come from anywhere, that he doesn't need anything, that his existence and his position are not contingent on anyone else. He is God, and he simply is, in and of himself, God just is is. And so Moses saw God that day on the mountain in his self-existence, in his holy otherness, his overwhelming glory. And then both in the words that God proclaimed in his ear and in the very fact that God shielded him from the deadly brightness of his own glory, Moses also got a glimpse that day of the Lord's mercy. The Lord, verse 6, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And all of these things, 
as we've considered them in the last three weeks, are overwhelming to consider. The sound of God's own personal name and the meaning behind it, the unfathomable mystery of a God who, unlike anything else that we see or know, did not come from anywhere and is not dependent on anything. And then the realization, much as he wanted to see God's glory, that it was far too much for Moses, that it would literally drain the life from him if he were to see God's face, if he were to behold God in all of his fullness. And then the great condescension of God to have carved out a hiding place for him to shield his creature from the unapproachable light of his own holiness. A God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And all of this... The conversation with God in the last half of chapter 33 and the revelation of God in the first part of chapter 34, all of this took place, I tell you, in the span of just two days. A remarkable two days they were. And we come this morning to consider at the end of it all Moses' response. What does a person do when he has encountered the greatness of God like Moses did on this day, or like I hope we have done as we've gone to Sinai with him? How does a person respond when he has encountered God like this? Well, what do we read in chapter 34, verse 8? Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Moses prostrated himself. Moses got down on his face before the Lord, and he did so, we're told, in a hurry. He made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Now, this is the first of several things I want you to notice this morning, this prostration. There is a posture of heart, sometimes even of body, that a person takes on when they've truly encountered the living God. And it's a posture of prostration, of humility and worship. Now, it's true the New Testament teaches us that because we are in Christ and because we have him as our great high priest, that we may draw near with confidence to God's throne. But what we see here in Exodus 34.8 doesn't negate that. And yet it does qualify it. It does show us that confidence is not the same as flippancy. Confidence is not the same as nonchalance. Because when Moses encounters God and when people encountered him all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, the response is always one of great humility, of prostration, of heart, and sometimes of body. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. What does it say about our God that Moses' immediate response to a sighting of him was to put his face in the dust? And what does it say about the one doing the bowing? We are small, aren't we? And God is great. How splendid he is. How magnificent. How terribly awesome. How other. How mysterious. That the most obvious response is just to get down on one's face and worship. This is one of the phenomena that ought to happen among us when we gather together on Sunday mornings and when we leave this place to go out for our weeks. Sometimes 
if we've really encountered the Lord in this room through the preaching and singing and praying of his word, we ought to find our hearts just bowed down within us in wonder, in awe, in humility, in worship. And the same should sometimes be true after our own private worship as well. Sometimes, yes, we should leave this building or get up from our personal devotion times and leap for joy in the Lord. And sometimes we ought to close the Bible or rise from these pews with a little bit of an ache in our backside because the Lord has disciplined us for our sin. But then sometimes the response ought to be just a great bowing of our hearts, a quiet and humble wonder at who God is and at his mercy in allowing us to see him for who he is, a quiet and humble worship that's not to be brushed aside but to be cultivated and lingered over and enjoyed. I don't doubt that as we open this passage together over the last three weeks, the Holy Spirit was gently nudging some of us down into this very posture under the preaching of this glorious God. And I want to urge you that that's a wonderful thing. If God shows up in the preaching and shows himself glorious in such a way that all we can do is turn our faces to the ground and worship. And when it happens, I want to urge you to go with it. To just bow your heart, maybe your head, maybe even your body before the Lord in adoration. Sometimes when the service is over, you might not even rise from the pew for a while because you just need to sit there in the presence of the Lord like Moses who made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And we shouldn't get up too quickly, I say. We bow down in haste, but we shouldn't get up in haste. Allow yourself time and space sometimes simply to be humbled in God's presence. You pull off the highway into Grand Canyon National Park, you get out of the car, you look around for five minutes, and then you jump back in and head for McDonald's? No. And if you did that, while you might derive some small benefit from briefly tearing at the mouth of that great wonder, you'd be missing out on a great deal if you didn't just linger. And then even when the lingering was done, if you didn't just wonder at what you had seen. And so it is far more with our God when he bows our hearts in worship, far from letting that sense of a big God and a small self wear off by busying ourselves with other things in the afternoon, maybe we should just find a quiet spot and let our hearts, maybe even our bodies, linger in that prostrate position for a while. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And I want to urge you not only to do the same, but to seek such a sighting of God, to pray that God shows you his glory in such a way that you won't be able to help yourself but to fall down on your face in wonder and humility. You can get down on your face because I'm saying that that's a good thing, but if God would show you his glory, you would get down on your face whether I said it or not. And that's what we need to pray for. And that was Moses' first response, his immediate response to this ravishing sighting of the living God, prostration. But then we need also to see that while his mouth was in the dust, he responded in a second way as well, namely with prayer. Prayer. 
Did you notice this in verse 9? After Moses had fallen on his face, whether immediately or after an interval of time, we're not sure, but at some point after he'd fallen on his face, he spoke. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. Now the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry would have us especially notice the first part of that sentence. And in this way, Moses knew that he had found favor in God's sight. He knew that this display of God's glory and the merciful way in which God had granted it to him were a show of God's favor. And as Henry points out, he immediately grounded a prayer upon it. When he saw that God had showed him his favor, he immediately grounded a prayer upon that favor. In other words, what is going through Moses' mind here at the beginning of verse 9 is something like this. God, you've shown me your favor. You've just granted me a tremendous blessing. And so I know that you're on my side. I know that you want my good. And so if that's the case, now I have even more confidence to ask for even more blessing from your hand. Which shows us that While it's true, yes, that there is a place and a significant place even for just bowing low before the Lord and being humbled and even silent in his presence. It may often be also that that same encounter when God has shown you his glory and while you are still on your face before him, it may be that that very same encounter sometimes will be one of your seasons of greatest confidence for making requests known to him, for believing that he's on your side, and for asking him on those grounds to do what only he can do. He has been so good to me today to show me his glory. Surely he'll be good to me in answering my prayers as well. Now, of course, we need to pray at all times. Indeed, we should pray without ceasing, Paul says. We need not always wait for God to show us some unusual sign of his favor before we pray. After all, it's the blood of Christ and not some other outward sign of God's presence that gives us warrant to pray so that we can and we should pray anytime so long as we come to God through Christ. So don't mishear me saying that you should only pray or that you only have a warrant to pray when God is drawn especially near like he did for Moses here in this chapter. Not so. And yet, and yet, when God does draw near, when God does show himself in glory, it may be in these times, especially after you've basked for a while, after you've wondered for a while, it may be especially in these times of God's drawing near and showing you his favor, that your heart will be flooded with confidence that he's on your side and therefore will have an ability to pray in greater faith than before. And so when God draws near and when you lie prostrate before him, let me urge you to venture prayer in those times too. These may be some of your hours of greatest faith. Prostration and prayer. It's an interesting paradox if you think about it. It is when we are in the presence of God, when he has shown us his glory, that we are most humbled, most bowed down before him, that we feel most small. And yet it's often in that very same presence and the fact that he has shown it to us that we realize how big God is treating us. We realize just how much favor he intends to show to us. And when we are therefore most confident to pray. And so the two often go together, prostration 
and prayer, bold prayer. But then we need to go on to ask, what did Moses pray for? What did he pray for? Well, Baptist preacher that I am, let me give you three more Ps. Prostration, prayer, and then three specific requests that Moses makes. First of all, presence. That's the first thing Moses prays for. You can see it there in verse 9. He prays for the presence of God in their wilderness crossing. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. Let the Lord go along in our midst. Let your presence go with us, to use the language of chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. And you may remember the backstory as to why this was so important. While Moses had been on the mountain with God the last time, in chapter 32, his countrymen had gotten restless and followed after the idolatries of the pagan nations by fashioning an idol of their own, a golden calf, to represent, allegedly, their invisible God. Hardly worthy of God, especially when we have seen him and his glory in this chapter, and especially when we know that he had been with the children in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, this God who had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with signs and wonders, hardly worthy of God what they did with this golden calf, but that's what they did, grievously provoking God in doing so, which is why God had said back at the beginning of chapter 33 that he was not going with them into the promised land. And now we find Moses pleading with the Lord not to send them up alone. And not for the first time here in verse 9, not even for the second time, but fully for the third time in these two chapters. He's pleading for the Lord not to send them up alone. Remember in chapter 33, verse 12, Moses remonstrated with the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, You're not going to go with us. Who's going to go with us? And God replies in verse 14, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. But then Moses pleads with him again in the next two verses, verses 15 and 16, as if just to be sure, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And again, verse 17, God promises he will go. I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. And then, between the prophet and his God, we have that great conversation about and that even greater revelation of God's glory that we've been considering in the last three weeks. And then what do we find are the first words out of the prophet's mouth once he has had this mountaintop experience? He's once again here in verse 9, chapter 34, for the third time in these two days, pleading with God for his presence. And so you see how hugely important this was for Moses. Three times he pleads for it, that God will go with his people. Twice God has already said that he will, but Moses is now asking again. He wants to make sure that God will be with them. Now, this this is the Moses who had seen God's glory. 
This is the Moses who had had that mountaintop experience that he'd been longing for. And I dare say that both the experience and the God he encountered in it were far more fantastic than even Moses could have imagined. But what we see here in verse 9 is that's not all Moses wants. At the end of the day, he not only wants to see God's glory to bask in his presence on the mountaintop, but he also wants to have God with him and with all of his people on every other day of the journey as well. And here's a marvelous portrait of the Christian life. The Christian, yes, wants to see God's glory. She wants to have those times, be it on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or in her own private times of worship in which God pulls back the veil and she sees God for all that he is or at least for all that she's able to handle. The Christian longs to be in the presence of God's glory. He looks for those moments of pure delight, those jaw-dropping moments of wonder, those mountaintop experiences, if you will, when he is given a glimpse of the Almighty. And yet, he also wants God to go along with him on every other step along the trail. He wants not only the glory on top of the mountain, but the pillar of cloud, or in our case, the guidance of the Holy Spirit and his gentle leading and voice every moment of the journey across this wilderness. And just like God granted his presence to Moses, so also by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God grants his presence to his people today every step along the journey. Because, do you remember how in the Gospel of John, Jesus promised that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to be in us and to be with us? I will ask the Father, John 14, 16, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That he, the Holy Spirit, very God of very God, may be with you forever. This is what Moses was asking for, and this is the promise of God to all who belong to him through Christ. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. My presence, Exodus thirty-three fourteen, shall go with you. Do you realize that on a daily basis, believer? That God, by his Holy Spirit, is with you and even in you, even though, verse 9, you are so obstinate. And even though I am as well, what a privilege to know that he will be by your side, not just when you meet with him on the mountaintop this morning, but in the lonely bedroom tonight and in the meeting room tomorrow and on the slippery road covered with snow and at every other point along your journey. And not only with you, but with us as a church and with the church in the world as a whole. Because remember, this is a corporate kind of request that Moses is making here. It isn't that he asked God only to go with himself. He asked God that God would go with us. And in the same way, Christianity, though we come into it personally, is a corporate faith, a group faith. We come to Christ as individuals, but we walk with him always as a group. And God's presence is always with that group, even where there are only just two or three of them meeting in an apartment. He is there in their midst. And so he is here now. And he will be with this church and with every church 
So long as there are two or three of us left gathered together in his name, my presence shall go with you. That was the first of three things that Moses asked of the Lord from his position, prostrate on the ground before him. And then the second was this, not only presence, but also pardon. Pardon, chapter 34, verse 9 again. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Now this is one of the things which, frankly, we will find ourselves praying if God should give us two true glimpses of himself. Oh God, forgive me of my sin. Not because God rubs our noses in it necessarily, but because we are actually so defiled by sin that when we come into the light of God's presence, we really can't help but see the stains. It's just a byproduct of coming into his marvelous light. Standing in front of the mirror, just in the natural light of morning that creeps through the window panes, if you have one or two significant blemishes on your face, you may be able to see them. Turn on the light switch and you'll surely see quite a few more. But then, when you get to be my age, and I tried this on Friday... Take one of those bright white LED bulbs that's on your phone and hold that up to your forehead. And if your face is like mine, you'll think you're looking at the surface of the moon. And that's the way it is, right? With the moral blemishes that are on our faces, as it were. The closer we draw near to God or the closer that he in his light draws near to us, the more spots and wrinkles we see marring our characters. We just can't help but see them. And this accounts for that unique phenomenon in which so often the longer a person walks with Christ, the worse he feels about his sin. It's not because he's becoming a worse sinner, quite the opposite if he's really walking with Christ, but the longer he walks with the Lord and the closer he presses into the light, the more he notices all the pockmarks of sin. And maybe this accounts too for why Moses here, after encountering God in such majesty, finds himself on his face begging for pardon. He has seen God like never before. And now he sees his sin too, perhaps like never before. Because notice here in verse 9 that he doesn't ask God concerning his countrymen to pardon their iniquity. That would have been a legitimate and timely request given all that had just taken place with the golden calf. And Moses made such a third person request at the end of chapter 32, verses 31 and 32. Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. Forgive their sin. Now again, that was a legitimate request. Moses wasn't being holier than thou by praying about their sin. They needed him to pray for their sin. But I did notice this past week that after his encounter with the glory of God, after his sighting of God's holiness here in chapter 34, Moses is now praying about sin also in the first person in verse 9. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. And I wondered why had Moses changed his pronouns? Why did he go from talking about them to talking about us? Well, it may be as one very 
sound commentators suggest that Moses is being gracious here, that even though the sin of the golden calf was not his own, yet Moses includes himself in the prayer request here as a show of solidarity with his people. And that may be right. But I wonder, too, rather, if Moses' pronouns have changed, if Moses has gone from praying about their sin to asking pardon for our sin, because having now been on the mountain with God, having stood under the LED lamp of his holiness, if Moses has now been reminded afresh that he needs God's pardon as well. Now, again, don't hear me suggesting that before this encounter, Moses didn't see his sin or that before this encounter, he was being holier than thou about the sins of his countrymen. That's not the case. It was right for him to pray about their sins. But now, having stood under the bright white light of God's glory, just the glory, mind you, that emanated from his back, as it were, now Moses has been reminded afresh, perhaps, of the scars on his own face, too. And that's what happens when we truly encounter God and when we who have been Christians for a long time even encounter him afresh. We are reminded all over again of what we already knew, but which we can always stand to learn again. Not only that we live among a people of unclean lips, but that we are men and women of unclean lips ourselves. And so the nearer we draw to God, often the more frequently do we pray with Moses, Oh, Lord, I pray, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Some of you may have find yourselves, found yourselves praying that this very week, this very morning, even coming into this building and knowing that you were coming here reminded you that it's not been a good week. And God is happy for us to pray in this way. And as with the request for his presence here, God has an answer for us as well. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may wash our robes white and wipe our faces clean of the guilt of sin in the blood of the Lamb. And that's good news this morning. If you found yourself feeling guilty today or this week, you've come to the right place to hear about the God who pardons iniquity and who pardons sin. So Moses prayed for God's presence. He prayed for pardon. And then in the final place, Moses prayed about possession. Not the people's possession of the land, which would have been a good request as well, but rather here in verse 9, he prays about God's possession of his people. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. What a request. On the one hand, This is perhaps Moses' way of pleading with the Lord not to abandon the people, not to disown them after the affair with the golden calf. But I also want you to note that, at least in my judgment, this may be the most grand request that Moses has made so far. 
This is not just a request for the pardon of sins or for the presence of God on their journeys or even for the manifestation of his glory, bold as those requests were. Here, Moses is asking God to actually take Israel as his beloved, to adopt them as his children, to claim possession on them in such a way that all of their affairs will be his concern. And yes, pardon for sin and his presence in the wilderness will surely be a part of that kind of commitment, but they will by no means exhaust it. And though God may show his glory in great blazes now and again, this is a request for God to be with them, to provide for them, to love them, to take ownership of them in all the mundane moments as well. This is no less than a request that God adopt the children of Israel as his own sons and daughters and thus provide everything for them. And you understand what that entails, right? What adoption entails? It means that the child is your own and that you'll go to all the doctor's visits and all the ball games. You'll cover every expense that he or she has. You'll tuck her in at night. You'll watch over him when he sleeps. You'll potty train, you will discipline, you will disciple, you'll show up in the rain when her car breaks down at the age of 16, you'll rejoice in all of her successes, and you'll do all of life together with this child. It is a huge commitment to be a parent, isn't it? These are the commitments that parents make, both when they birth a child and when they adopt one. You take this child as your own cherished possession to provide for, to nurture, to love, to do all of life with, to be there in thick and thin. And this is what Moses is asking at the end of verse 9 on behalf of his people Israel. And this is what God does for his people in every generation. Telling us in the book of 1 Peter, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. And what does that entail? Well, consider this from the lips of Jesus. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? That's what it means to be God's possession, to be His child. Indeed, just notice that the term father, this relationship of father and child, is Jesus' favorite way of describing the first person of the Trinity, to call Him Father. Not only his own father, but ours as well if we belong to Christ. And that's telling us something, isn't it? If God is our father, then we are his children. We are his own possession. And he is committed to us just like and even more so than the best earthly fathers. And so this is an all-encompassing request at the end of verse 9. If God is our Father and if we are His possession, then He will surely do all the other things Moses is asking Him and even more. Think about moms and dads, how much you love your children, how you treasure these little possessions that God has stewarded to you for a dozen and a half years, how you have altered the course of your life for them. 
How you have prayed over them and watched them sleep and grieved over their sins and rejoiced in their triumphs and changed their diapers and forked out bill after bill after bill from your wallet for them in ways that they will never understand until they have children of their own. And then you realize that that's what God is asking, or Moses is asking of God. And that's what God does for his children. He has taken you into his arms and marshaled his resources and wrapped himself up in your affairs in ways that are far greater than any of us parents will ever do. One of the ways that Amy Carmichael described her work among endangered children in India was to say that she cut the toenails of a thousand children. Now, she did far more than that. She rescued some of them from slavery. She taught them the gospel and the Bible. She and her co-workers provided them food and clothing and schooling and affection and a future and a hope. But the bit about the toenails gets us right down to the nitty-gritty of what it meant for her to take these poor little children as her own possession. And I say to you that this is a picture of our Father in heaven taking us as his very own, right down to all the little scrapes and bruises in your life and to the cutting of a thousand toenails, including yours and mine. Have you begun to realize this about your God? How he watches over you when you sleep? How he was causing your little heart to beat in your mother's womb even before you knew you had a heart or a mother? How he is at all of your events cheering you on, how his discipline for you is good, how it is he who shows up when your car breaks down or when your body gives way, how he consistently feeds you body and soul. Every little detail of your life he is watching over as a wise and loving father, even when you don't know that he's there. And so it's quite a study in contrast that we have in this passage, isn't it? The God whose name is I Am, who comes from nowhere, who needs nothing, who is contingent upon no one. The God whose face you cannot see and live, stooping down to take you as his own possession, putting food on your table, answering your prayers about your lost keys, comforting you in your disappointments, helping you with your little sermon on Sunday morning, taking pleasure in our little songs, gently disciplining us for our sins, but forgiving them completely, and clipping our toenails in a thousand other ways because we are his own possession and he is our father. And that's what fathers do. And in the shadow of a God like that, we have one more reason as we come to the close of this section of the book of Exodus to make haste to bow low toward the earth and worship.